As we move into Lent, I'm going to do something that I haven't done before, which is a preaching series. So I'm not going to go from the readings today. I've got some topics that I'm going to cover, and I actually have some notes. So try to, uh, try to accept that I need to do this with notes, otherwise we'll be here all day. Um, the, we, we have been admonished on Ash Wednesday to enter into Lent um, with practices of self-examination and fasting and prayer and almsgiving. And uh, so what I'm picking up from is that uh, self-examination side of things. And, um, and, and I joked uh, uh, in my Ash Wednesday sermon, for those of you that were here, about the enthusiasm the medievals had for lists of sins that could be, you know, full manuals for confessors about all the various sins that people could commit. Um, but I thought, you know, those lists, uh, there's a wisdom to them because most of us are, are even unaware of the sins we may be committing. And certainly in Lent, as we refocus on our spiritual life, it is profitable to do that kind of fearless moral inventory. So I have uh, some reflections on deadly sins for you. There are traditionally seven uh, identified by Pope Gregory. Um, I've added two more because I'm an Enneagram enthusiast, and I think that uh, those folks found two more deadly sins that we need to talk about. So I'm going to do nine, three per sermon. I've got three sermons before uh, Palm Sunday when we'll get back on to the scripture readings. Um, and so I'm doing three deadly sins today. Now, we'll get to which ones they are in a moment. In general, I want to talk about the two commandments. Sin is violating one of the two commandments or both of them. Love God, love your neighbor. And in our secular conversation, which is a comfortable conversation, we're, we're quite comfortable talking about the sins against the neighbor. We know what, it's, what, it, what it means to do evil towards our brothers and sisters, and we know what it means to do good towards our brothers and sisters. We're a little fuzzier on what it means to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So my first observation for you as I jump into this conversation around sin is that from a Christian perspective, one of the things we encounter when we are serious about the spiritual life is that we try not to sin against our neighbor, but we keep sinning against our neighbor despite our best intentions. If we're honest with ourselves, we're a lot less good than we like to think we are. So why is it that, you know, the good that I do not wish to do, I still do, as Paul said, as Augustine said, that that, that real examination says uh, that I, I, I will always fail to be as loving as I know I could be. And the first observation is that's because we need to attend to the first commandment in order to grow in the second. The, the, we are transformed by God's work, by God's grace, not by acts of will and determination. So we have to allow God to work in us, to transform us, and that means we have to be open to God's presence. That is the love of God with all heart, soul, mind, and strength. So we have to attend to the first commandment in order that we get better at the second commandment. And each of these deadly sins is in fact an identification of one of the habits or practices or ways in which the relationship between us and God becomes impaired. In fact, they're all a form of idolatry when you dig right down to it. We've taken what should be God as our highest value and we've substituted something else in the place of God which then we become obsessed with or preoccupied with and that, that in fact impairs our relationship with God. So our loves become disordered. And that, of course, is one of the great definitions of sin, disordered love. It's still love underneath there but it's gotten warped and twisted somehow. So... 
on to the three deadly sins for this morning. These are what I would call the sins of the heart. They, uh, they are a preoccupation with how I feel, usually how I feel about myself. The first one and deadliest of all the sins, traditionally speaking, is the sin of pride. That is the root sin of everything. Pride is the love of self. And that takes all kinds of forms. And it is very subtle. I mean, we're all familiar with the obvious cartoonish pride of, you know, the the picture of the... um, the African dictator covered in medals, chest puffed out, surrounded by a marching band and soldiers. Oh, look at me, I am the greatest. We're, we're familiar with that. Very few people are at that cartoonish level of pride. Most of us pride, in most of us, pride manifests in much more subtle ways. Um, the, uh, with a little um, examination and honesty, we can start to see that we live in a culture of pride where we, we, are, we are in a culture of self-presentation, particularly since the dawn of social media. Social media is the medium of pride. What do you put on your social media feed, your Instagram, your Facebook, whatever, but all the things you're proud of, the things that are good or the things that you're happy about, which all essentially present something, a, a, an edited version of yourself. Because you're not going to throw your dirty laundry all over social media, of course not. But the end result of all that is a, is a, it creates an atmosphere which, which uh, reinforces the worst aspects of those prideful tendencies, where what we want is to get that positive feedback for others, and so we present ourselves in a certain way. There's also, um, well, there, famously, there's a book called The Culture of Narcissism. So there's another analysis of our culture that says we've created a culture, particularly since the baby boom, that is all about me. And all the marketing, I mean, me.com, right? iPod, iPhone, right? It's me, it's I, it's I am the heart of everything. And any successful marketing campaign is going to say, it's all about you, baby. And you go, yeah, it is. It's all about what I want, what I need. I am the center of my universe, which is classically the sin of pride. When you are the center of your own universe, you are doomed, you are enslaved, you are unhappy. So to let that go becomes the goal of humility, the corresponding virtue. Every deadly sin has a corresponding virtue, which is its opposite. The opposite of pride is humility. Now, there is a version of pride that I have to name because it is common to us who are people of goodwill, church people, and others of goodwill. There's a version of pride that looks like this. Don't worry about me. How are you doing? The the I am really. I want to be your helper. I want to help you. I want to serve you. I you know what do you need? I'll be there for you. I'll do whatever it takes. Well, yeah, but how are you? Oh no no, I'm totally fine. Yeah, my leg's falling off, but it's just it's fine, <laughs> right? So there's a there is a there's a way of being a person of goodwill that minimizes your own weakness and vulnerability and neediness and focuses instead on serving the other person. And so you say to yourself and to them, what a good person I am. I only care about you. I don't care about me. And so pride masquerades as virtue, but underneath it psychologically, it is still fundamentally self-centered. So in order to become truly humble, we have to paradoxically admit the things that make us vulnerable and weak and broken. Um, 
uh, there's a line that you may hear in spiritual direction and counseling, which is be gentle with yourself. This is the antidote to pride, to acknowledge your own limitations. Um, I am no stranger to pride. My default is I can handle it. Um, and I have found to my shame and sorrow that no, I can't always handle it. And the way to health is painful when I say I can't do this. I'm not doing all that well, actually. Um, and so sometimes um, it feels like humiliation, but it's the beginning of humility. Now, humility, if you want to practice humility, it's one of those uh, paradoxical virtues where you can't get at it directly. When I was a young man, I was accused of being arrogant, and it really stuck. It got under my skin. And so I said, I'm not going to be arrogant. I want to be you know, a, a good Christian, and so I'm going to work on being humble. And from the perspective I have today is there's nothing more arrogant than a young man trying to be humble. <laughs> that it, it makes it worse, right? Um, so, in fact, the best uh, insight into the virtue of humility that I ever ran across is that it is a byproduct of striving with your whole being to seek the kingdom of God. That's it. Just forget about yourself and get on with serving the Lord and seeking the Lord. And humility will come to you as a byproduct. If you don't care and just get on with what you're doing, then all of a sudden you'll notice that you've actually forgotten about yourself, finally. Um, but as soon as you look, there you are again. So ignore it, get on with it, just do what God calls you to do and humility will follow. And if you're only focused on what God calls you to do and you're honest about who you are, there's no room for pride in that. Um, that if what you want is the kingdom of God, you'll recognize there are things that you can do and things that you can't do. And if you're honest about that, you can say, well, I need other people who can do the things that I can't do so that we can find the kingdom of God together. So that's pride. Um, oh, there's a holy idea, which a theological idea or a doctrine that, that, that is an antidote to each of these sins. The holy idea for pride is grace. Paul's theology in general emphasizes that works cannot get us into the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't matter how hard we work. It is actually just an, uh, 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 an incontrovertible fact that we are sinners. Get over it. Accept it. Allow God to love us even while we are yet sinners. That's hard for a pride person. Now, we are all pride people, by the way. Um, next deadly sin. This is not one of Gregory's seven deadlies. Uh, it is the sin of deceit, um, lying, untruthfulness. Um, again, we look at our culture, and we live in a culture of deceit. We have been dubbed the post-truth culture. You look at social media and news media and propaganda outlets and, um, and the, the, uh, the, the foment online and outrage culture and so forth, and we have no idea who is telling the truth and why anymore. The whole uh, latest uh, political conversation in Canada about Jody Wilson-Raybould and the SNC-Lavalin affair and so forth, depending on what way you look at it, you see a completely different reality. And there are op-eds on every side of the issue saying, you know, there's nothing to see here. Oh, no, she's the only one with a moral fiber and the whole sordid affair and everything in between. And you go, I don't even know what to think anymore because these people see everything. So the, in, in, a, in a culture of BS and baffle gab, the temptation is just to throw up your hands and go, I don't know anything. I don't even care anymore. I'm shutting off. And I'm not even going to bother to vote, for example. 
which allows untruthfulness to take over the conversation. Deceit destroys. Truth heals. Truth is painful. Deceit attempts to narcotize against the pain. We learn to lie as a very young child, and they're the most honest liars of all of us, because there they are with their face dripping with ice cream, and you say, did you take ice cream? And they go, no. <laughs> right? That they lie to get out of trouble, right? And it's simple, and it's instinctive, and that's where it starts, where they don't, they, they want to be treated better, so the lying becomes the shortcut. And that can, that can carry on into adulthood. It just gets more subtle. The worst part about deceit is that in the end, we lie to ourselves. And we engage in denial, particularly if there's a truth about ourselves that we don't want to look at. Our instincts are to look away and tell ourselves it ain't so. So to identify the deadly sin of deceit for what it is, we have to strive for the corresponding virtue, which is honesty. And here I'm reminded of that great monastic attitude to communication. It's, it's known in public as the vow of silence. Um, but it's not about silence. It, the principle is if it's not from your heart and if it's not true, don't say it. And if you're honest with yourself, that cuts out most of what we do. So you end up being a lot quieter if you have a rule for yourself that all you're going to say is from the heart and true. That attitude to communication, and, and I could go on for hours about the monastic life and how it is a direct attempt to combat these particular sins. But anyway, the virtue of honesty, the holy idea, the doctrine, is of course the doctrine of truth. We have no end of biblical stories about truth versus falsehood, light versus darkness. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And if you are a follower of Jesus, then you become a follower of the truth, and the truth will set you free. There's no end to Christian material that pulls us away from deceit and towards truth. And if we really do our homework, we will see how deceitful we are to ourselves and to others. Finally, oh, the last thing, the, the pr last practice for, for overcoming deceit, meditation. There's nothing like inner silence to find out what's really going on and get past the things we tell ourselves all the time. If we just let go, we will start to feel truth in our bones. So, last deadly sin for this morning, covetousness, envy. And we live, you know, again, I can't, I can't help but think of social media where there's a whole generation now that has been raised scrolling through their phones, seeing the social posts of everyone else in their life, and what gets posted on social media? All the great stuff. Hey, I just got a new job. Hey, I just got uh, nominated for an award. Hey, we're in the Bahamas. Look at this picture of my feet on the beach. And, you know, and scroll and scroll and scroll. And, I, and you have this impression that everybody else is having an amazing life. And then you look at your own life, and it's actually all pretty bad. And so you become envious. So we have actually created a culture of envy in our online culture. And the thing about envy is that it's rooted in dissatisfaction. I am unhappy. Again, it's about the heart. It's about wanting to be happy. And there's an awareness that I am so unhappy. And I look at others and I see that they have those things. And I conclude erroneously that if I have those things, then I will be happy. And all I can see is what I don't have and what they do have. And so I spiral down into darkness and anger 
and hatred. And I say hatred advisedly because at a certain point with envy, it's not good enough just to have what they have. In fact, you get to the point where you actually want to destroy what they have too. That it's, it's not enough for me to want what they have. They shouldn't even have it. And there are office jokes about that. You know that guy that comes in and he's always like a morning person and he's chirping and he's smiling and he's so fit and he just did a thousand push-ups before coming to work. I hate him so much, right? And we laugh and it's a standard joke, but underneath it is that envy which gives it the humor. It gives the humor some legs because there is that, God, I hate those people that have everything going for them, right? Why can't they just be normal like the rest of us? And that, that is the root of envy, which is the deadly sin, because it locks you into this attitude of dissatisfaction and furthermore, entitlement. Because I deserve that, they shouldn't have that, and I shouldn't have this. And so that attitude of entitlement also starts to get tied up in this. Now, the virtue, the corresponding virtue, is gratitude. So the way to get out of that spiral of envy is to practice gratitude, to remind yourself of the blessings that you have. There's no end of mystics that talk about the present moment unfolding every blessing from God if only we have the awareness to pay attention. So mindfulness, being in the moment, not in the past, not in the future, not somewhere else, but right here, right now. And if we, if we bring our attention back to the right here and right now, we will find that there are things to be grateful for, much more than we might credit at first. Um, and so we are able to escape the trap of envy, which leads, and, and again, just a little throwaway to social media culture, the epidemic of depression, anxiety, and suicide amongst young people that are glued to their phones. And the number one correlation is the amount of scrolling on social media that they do um, between the levels of reported depression, anxiety, and suicide risk. So away from what everybody else has and into the blessings that you have. The holy idea, of course, is thanksgiving. At the beginning of the Eucharistic prayer, we talk about blessing and glory and thanksgiving are due to God. And that's, we always center ourselves in thanksgiving when we pray. Some of you may be aware of the ACTS acronym for a personal prayer, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. And the point of that little, um, that little taxonomy is to remember all those parts of prayer and make sure that your prayer life incorporates them in some way. And thanksgiving is essential. So those are your three deadly sins for today. Tune in next week for <laughs> the deadly sins of the mind. The last thing I will say before leaving this is that underneath all of this is the holy idea of, uh, of God's love. God loves us even though we're sinners. The point is to get away from this false idea that we have to eliminate all sin in order to be lovable. We are already loved. The point to el of eliminating the sin is to break down the barriers between ourselves and the love and blessing that is being showered upon us by God every moment of every day. And if we do that, then we will be the deepest beneficiaries of our attention to virtue. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.